Interesting. Uh, I'm Tom Licata, one of the elders here at uh, Grace Church. And today we're going to look at a couple of scriptures. I'm going to start out by looking at Hebrews chapter 3. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Hebrews chapter 3. And when you find it, if you are able, stand with me as we read it. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 through 14. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your word. We just pray that uh, as we look at your word today, that uh, your spirit will uh, speak to the hearts of those here who, uh, who need to hear what you have to hear. And, and we just pray that that will be open to what it is you want to teach us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. May be seated. Um, here the writers of the Hebrews talks about how we need to take care and avoid the deceitfulness of sin, which is our main theme. And take care means to, uh, to be watchful, to be on your guard, lest you harden your hearts. Your hearts become hardened. You have an evil, unbelieving heart. Now, keep in mind, he's talking to believers here. So even for believers, there's this danger of having an evil, unbelieving heart, of hardening our hearts through the deceitfulness of sin. And when it says the deceitfulness of sin, I don't think it necessarily means that you're deceived, you don't realize you're sinning. I, I think most of the time you probably do, although there's, there's probably occasions where maybe you don't. But I think it's pro- he's probably talking more in terms of um, how the destruction you know, destructive nature of sin, that we don't fully grasp that. And, and, and in that sense, sin is deceitful, and we misjudge it. And so, if you think of it as sort of a chasm, you know, like you have to jump over, and sometimes you'll see this in movies, where somebody has to jump over some chasm, or they're jumping from one building to the next, or something like that. And, uh, and so the, the, the person, the hero, has to judge, can he make this leap? You know, you don't want to misjudge something like this, right? So... Usually, they don't quite judge it right, and they end up hanging on for their dear life, whatever, and they manage to pull themselves up. Uh, unless it's a bad guy, maybe he doesn't make it. But usually the good guy always makes it. But you see, the problem is, if, you have, if you're trying to jump over this chasm, and you misjudge it, you think you can make it, you think you'll be okay, and you misjudge it, you can get seriously hurt, if not killed. And that's how it is with the deceitfulness of sin. We misjudge it. We, we think, oh, I'll be okay. I can, you know, I can jump this. And then we end up uh, hurting hurting ourselves, hurting others. Now, we want to take care and avoid the deceitfulness of sin, so how do we do that? Well, I want to look at two paths that we can take in life. One I'm calling the thoughts that lead to the road to destruction. In other words, the kind of thinking, the thinking pattern that causes to lead down the road of destruction, the road of sin. And the other is motivation that leads to the path of righteousness. Because, like it or not, we need to be motivated sometimes to take the path of right. It shouldn't be the case, but it often is. So to illustrate these points, I want to look at a story in Joshua chapter 7. So if you could turn there, Joshua chapter 7, that's near the beginning. It's the sixth book in the Bible. If I can find it myself. And let me just read the first verse here. It goes, But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things, 
For Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zebdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things, and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. Now, just to give you some background to this, Israel, had they had um, left Egypt, you know, with, you know, with Moses and all those miracles, and they had wandered in the wilderness for 40 years under the leadership of Moses. Well, at the end of that time, Moses died and Joshua took over. And now God was going to lead them into the promised land. And God had told them, he said, now be careful to do all that I have commanded you to do. And if you do that, then you will have success. You'll have victory over your enemies. And so just prior to, uh, to this story here with uh, Achan, they had conquered the city of Jericho. And you probably recall the city of Jericho. Jericho was a mighty city. It was a well-fortified city, had big, powerful, you know, walls, and it was going to be difficult to defeat it, but God miraculously caused the walls to fall down, and of course, the army of Israel was able to just march in and wipe everyone out. Now, they were commanded to wipe everyone out to to destroy everything, and the reason is because it was very, very important to God that Israel not become polluted, not become influenced by these other nations. Uh, Anyone left alive, of course, was worshiping other gods, and it could end up being influenced. Anything, you know, things often are, are created or made with, you know, these pagan gods that you worship in mind. So to, to make sure they were not going to be uh, polluted in any way, they were to kill everyone, to wipe everything out. And, and they were devoted to God in the sense that when you, like, offer a sacrifice, let's say you have offering a burnt offering, and that, you know, you take one of your sheep or something that belongs to you, and it's completely burned up. It's gone. It's like you've given it to the Lord, and you don't have it anymore. It's not there to be had anymore. So in that sense, everything in these cities was devoted to God, and you were not to keep any. You were supposed to destroy it all. And it was in that sense that he talks about the devoted things. Well, as they were conquering Jericho, there was one of the uh, Israeli soldiers that they were going and wiping everything out, and, uh, and one of them goes into one of the homes and sees some things he wants. Some nice clothes, you know, some silver coins, you know, that kind of a thing. And he's thinking, gosh, you know, what a waste to wipe this out. You know, sometimes I try to, to relate it to something I can relate to. So, for instance, let's say Aiken was, you know, a comic book collector. And he goes in there and there's this, this great, you know, collection of comic books, you know, action comic number one, you know, the first Superman, the first Batman, in mint condition, you know, kind of the holy grail of comics. He's looking at this going... I'm supposed to wipe this out, you know? I, what a shame! What a waste, you know? And so, uh, and so you can see, you know, that's how it starts down the road. Of destruction. We see things and we want. It doesn't have to necessarily be material things, but they're things in life that that we want that we think is going to bring us happiness or pleasure or whatever. And that's how it was with Aiken. He saw some stuff and he thought he wanted it, and he thought, "What a waste!" You can see the 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 progression of his thoughts. He sees something and he's tempted because he wants it. Now, he thinks, you know, what a waste, what a shame to destroy this. So he takes a few comics or whatever, sticks it under his cloak, you know, maybe, maybe the best ones, you know. He'll just wipe everything else out, you know. And, and so he's thinking, you know, what harm is he going to do, right? Take a few, a few of these things. You know, it's not going to hurt anybody, you know. It's just a few things. It'll wipe everything else out. And besides, no one will know, right? He's got it hidden under his clothes. No one can see it. He ends up hiding it in his tent. And nobody knows about it. So it's not going to do any harm. It's not going to hurt anybody. It's such a shame, you know. And you can see we've probably all thought similar kinds of thoughts before when we're tempted with things. So we end up doing what we shouldn't, or we end up not doing what we should. Uh, we end up not 
uh, living our lives the way that we know that we should. And why? Because, because for various reasons. We think it's going to bring us happiness, because of pleasure. It's maybe inconvenient to do what God wants to do. You know, this kind of a thing. But whatever the reasons are why we sin, and we all sin, and there's got to be some reason why we do, whatever that reason is, though, we're, we're putting that reason ahead of our relationship with God. So why do we do that? You know, in, in Romans chapter 7, Paul talks about this inner struggle how he knows what he should do. His mind knows what he should do, but he sees in his, his body, his members, another law at work. He knows the kind of life he ought to live, but he seems to be unable to live it. And, and it's just like this paradox. And he says, you know, who can free me for this? Well, thanks be to Jesus Christ. Now, why is there this struggle? And we're going to struggle with this all of our lives, but it's because we have a sinful nature. We're born with a sinful nature, and that sinful nature kind of keeps pulling us in the direction that maybe we shouldn't go. Now, when you become a Christian, a true born-again Christian, you receive a new nature. And so now we don't have to walk by the old nature. We can choose to walk by the new nature. We can choose to walk by the Spirit. But the old nature is still there, and so now, now we have to make the choice. And hopefully we choose to walk by the nature, but a new nature, but sometimes we don't. It's kind of like... Um, like an alcoholic, an alcoholic who wants to get off of alcoholism. And let's say he starts going to Alcoholics Anonymous. The first thing he has to do is to say, I am an alcoholic. He has to admit that. The first thing any person has to do before they come to know Jesus Christ has to admit, I am a sinner. I've not lived my life the way I should, and I'm unable to do so. And so you have to admit it. Now, you could take an alcoholic, and he, you know, he could be sober for, say, 20 years, and he's still going to AA meetings, even though he hasn't touched, you know, a drop of liquor for 20 years. But why does he still go to those meetings? Because he never wants to forget, you know, that he's an alcoholic. Even though he hasn't, he's been sober for 20 years, but he knows he's still an alcoholic and he needs to always be on his guard. Like it says in Hebrews, take care, be watchful, be on your guard. You can't ever forget that you've got that sinful nature that'll pull you the wrong way if you don't keep watch, if you're not careful. And just like another reason he goes to AA meetings, it, it gives him that support. And that's why in Hebrews it says that we are to encourage everyone, one another, exhort one another every day as long as it is called today. Why? Because our old sinful nature doesn't take a day off, right? We, we have to live with the sinful nature every day, every day. All it takes is one day to, uh, to fall off the wagon, so to speak. So we see, we want, and we have the sinful nature that we have to deal with. And then secondly... Uh, the th- kind of thinking that leads down the road is not acknowledging God in everything that we do. Look again at uh, Joshua chapter 7, at verse 2. It says, Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Bethhaven, near Bethel, and said to them, Go up and spy out the land. And the men went up and spied out Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not have all the people go up, but let about two or 3,000 men go up and attack Ai. Do not make the whole people toil up there, for they are few. So about 3,000 men went up there uh, from the people, and they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai killed about 36 of the men and chased them before the gate as far as Shabaram and struck them at the descent. And the hearts of the people melted and became like water. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell on the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until evening, he and all the elders of Israel. And they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all? To give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? 
Would that we had been content to dwell beyond the Jordan. O Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? Then the Lord said to Joshua, Get up, why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Now, there's two things that we can get out from this. First off, you notice how this time when they went up and attacked Ai, they didn't consult the Lord. They didn't pray about it. You know, they probably felt like they didn't need to. It wasn't necessary. It wasn't that big a deal, right? Ai is a little city compared to, to, to Jericho. And you can see a little bit of pride kind of creeping in, you know. Ah, you know, we don't need that many people. Two or three thousand, good enough. We'll go near White Mount, no problem. You know, after all, we conquered a much bigger city of Jericho, kind of quickly forgetting how they, there's no way they could have done it without the Lord's help. Now, after they got defeated, then they're on their face and tearing their clothes and putting ash on their head and before the Ark of the Covenant, you know, and praying, God, you know, what are you going to do? What have you done? You know, this kind of a thing. And then God reveals to them, hey, you know what, you've got sin in your camp and you need to take care of it. Now, had they prayed, I'm convinced had they prayed before they went to Ai and sought the Lord out, you know, should we go up and attack Ai and all this kind of thing, I believe that before they attacked Ai, God would reveal to them, no, don't go up to Ai, you've got sin in your camp and you need to take care of it first. But they didn't seek the Lord. And, and again, it, this was not, uh, they weren't rebellious against God, they were just ignoring God. And, and I feel like we are guilty of that throughout the day. See, throughout the day, we're to be thinking about God and all of our decisions and all the things we do. We should be acknowledging God. We should be praying to God. And you say, we should be praying to God, you know, about everything? Yeah. In First Thessalonians 5, 17, what does it say? To pray without ceasing or to pray in all circumstances. We should be praying throughout the day. We should be praying about everything. But the, the reality is most of us probably forget about God. We ignore God. You know, we get to you know, go about our daily business. And it's not that we're being rebellious against God. We're just not thinking about it. That's kind of how it was with Israel. They weren't being rebellious. They just didn't think about God. They didn't think to, to inquire of the Lord. It didn't seem necessary. It didn't seem that big a deal. But they, what they're doing is they were taking the Lord for granted. And, and you know, we often slip into that. You know, thinking, going down the road to destruction isn't always thinking bad thoughts. Sometimes it's just not thinking about God at all. And the third thing, third kind of thinking that leads down to this road is thinking that it will do no harm. Achan could not see how it would do any harm. You know, it takes a few things, sticks under his cloak, nobody knows about it. How's it going to, how's, you know, what harm is it going to do? But yet 36 people ended up dying because of it, and Israel suffered a great defeat. Now, we often slip into the same kind of thinking because whether we realize it or not, we're more influenced by the world than we care to admit. You know, we live in a physical, material world. And so we tend to think along those lines. In other words, if, if something we're going to do is not going to hurt someone else physically, it's not going to hurt somebody else, say, materially or maybe even psychologically, then, you know, what harm is it going to do, right? But you see... More important to God than the physical and the material and all that is our spiritual well-being. And sin hurts the spiritual well-being. And, and just like the whole nation of Israel was hurt because of Achan's sin, when we sin, it can negatively affect the spiritual vitality of the people around us. It can negatively affect the, the spiritual welfare of the church. It can negatively affect the spiritual welfare of your family. 
or those people you love. And we don't, we don't look at that because it's not something we can physically see, right? But the, the, the spiritual well-being is being affected by that. You know, I remember reading in a uh, biography of Billy Graham, and they were talking about, uh, like before one of their crusades, how uh, they really wanted God to, you know, to, to use their crusade and to work in the hearts of the people in the city. And, and so they were praying about it. And one of the things they exhorted one another was, now nobody go out and sin. Everybody keep pure, you know. Because they were convinced that that kind of thing could affect the effectiveness of their crusade, of God using, using them in their crusade. I remember reading that thinking, well, no wonder God used Billy Graham and his organization to such a great extent, you know, with that kind of thinking. Sometimes we forget about that kind of thing, and we don't think it has any effect, but it does. And fourthly, thinking we can get away with it. You know, how many times do we sin because we think we can get away? Achan was convinced he had gotten away with it. Nobody saw him take those things. He hit him in his tent, buried him in the ground. Those tents, I mean, they were their homes, but, you know, the tents we use nowadays will have like a plastic ground cover. But these tents just, you know, had the cover, and, and the, the, the ground was your floor. So he just dug a hole inside of his tent and buried these things so nobody could see it. How's anybody going to know? You know, thinking that we can get away with it. You know, I, um, I'm a teacher, as most of you know, and, and when we go through uh, Macbeth, it was one of the, the plays we go through. Macbeth, if you know the play, he, he wanted to be king, so he killed the king and, and became king himself. Uh, and the reason he felt he could get away with it is because some witches had told him that, you know, predicted that he would be king, and that kind of emboldened him that he could do this and get away with it. So um, I asked the students, you know, it was a journal question, you know, if you could uh, do something wrong and get away with it, would you? And what would you do? And I had about two-thirds that would say yes. About a third would say no. But two-thirds would say, yeah, usually it was something along the lines of, you know, I'd steal a million dollars or rob a bank or something like that. But still, you know, in their thinking, hey, if you can get away with it, you're not going to get in trouble. You know, why not? And I wonder how many of us you know, slip into that. If you're not going to get in trouble, if there's not going to be any consequences, then, you know, why not? That, that certainly was Aiken's thinking. Now, sadly, even as Christians, sometimes we need to be motivated to do the right thing. And that brings us to the second major point, that is motivations to take the path of righteousness. Uh, look back at Joshua chapter 7. Verse 10, Then the Lord said to Joshua, Get up, why have you fallen face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. And then God gives them some instructions in what to do. So in verse 16, it says, So Joshua rose early in the morning and brought Israel near tribe by tribe, and the tribe of Judah was taken. Now, he probably had a representative from each tribe, and so each, you know, that's how the, the uh, different tribes were taken. God obviously was guiding them. And you can imagine at this point, Achan, when he's seeing this going on, what's going through his mind. It's like, you know, oh no, you know. His knees probably started to shake a little bit, and, and it probably became more and more nervous as each step of the way. Verse 17, And he, Joshua, brought near the clans of Judah, and the clan of the Zerahites was taken. And he brought near the clan of Zerahites, man by man. And Zebdi was taken. And he brought near his household, man by man. And Achan, son of Carmi, son of Zebdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, was taken. Then Joshua said to Achan, My son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel, and give praise to him, and tell me, now what have you done? 
Do not hide it from me. And Achan answered Joshua, Truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar, and two hundred shekels of silver, and a bar of gold weighing fifty shekels, then I coveted them, and I took them. And see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent, and the silver underneath. So Joshua sent messengers, and they ran to the tent, and behold, it was hidden in his tent with silver, with the silver underneath. And they took them out of the tent and brought them to Joshua and to all the people of Israel. And they laid them down before the Lord. And Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, and the silver and the cloak and the bar of gold and his sons and daughters and his oxen and donkeys and sheep and his tent and all that he had. And they brought them up to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, Why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord bring trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones, and they burned them with fire and stoned them with stones. And they raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of that place is called the Valley of Achor. So what we see here, of course, is the consequences for his sin. He ends up confessing it. But what are some motivations that we can pull out of this? Well, one, of course, we've kind of already talked about, and that is that others are hurt by your sin. And we hurt others. Obviously, you can see how the nation of Israel is hurt, obviously his own family, because um, they were probably aware of what he did, and that, that made them uh, co-conspirators, so to speak. But again, God deals very hard, so we think, boy, that seems pretty harsh. Well, that's because God takes sin a lot more seriously than you and I do. That's why we, don't, we feel it's, not, it's pretty harsh. But God had to keep the nation of Israel pure because he had a purpose for them. And also, not only do you hurt others, but of course you hurt yourself. And how can you be a spiritual blessing to others if you yourself are sinning? Now, if you're in a marriage, what would it do to your marriage if you keep doing things that hurt your spouse? Keep doing things that uh, cause your spouse to, to get angry and this kind of a thing. And So if you keep hurting your spouse, I mean, what kind of a marriage are you going to have? You're not going to have a very good marriage. Uh, same with our relationship with God. If we keep doing things that grieve the Holy Spirit, what kind of a relationship are we going to have with God? And of course, just this loving God, you don't hurt your spouse because you love your spouse, hopefully. And uh, as we love God, that obviously is one of the great motivations. Again, using the example of marriage, when you're, when you're married, you do things together, right? I mean, you love your spouse, you want to do things together, maybe go out for dinner, maybe to a movie or something like that, maybe just go for a walk. You know, on your birthdays, Christmas, you give each other gifts, you know, this kind of thing. I mean, why do you do that? Because you love each other, right? I mean, those kinds of things don't make you married, but they make for a better marriage. Same thing with our relationship with God. You know, why do we obey God? Obeying God, obeying any particular commandments isn't going to make you saved, but it will make for a better relationship with God. And hopefully, that motivation is, is something you care about. If you don't care about something like that, then you ought to examine where exactly your heart is with the Lord. And then secondly, we see from this passage that you can be sure that your sins will find you out. And, and Achan had this warning in Numbers 32-23, and this is from Moses before the Joshua had ever entered the land. God said, but if you do not do so, and again, God had given them some commandments of things he wanted them to do. And then after that, he says, but if you do not do so, behold, you have sinned against the Lord, and be sure your sin will find you out. Be sure your sin will find you out. Achan never thought in a million years that his sin would get found out. But you know what? If God wants your sin to be, get, to be discovered, it'll be discovered. 
And there's nothing you can do about it. Even if all human logic would suggest there's no way anybody could find out about it. If God wants to be found out, you know, you're just going to have the worst luck in the world. Darn, how did they ever find out about it? You know, if God wants to be found out, there's nothing you can do about it. It'll be found out. You know, I was watching uh, years ago this movie called City Slickers. And uh, this, it starred Billy Crystal. And I can't remember the name of this character, but the Billy Crystal character was married. And in one scene, there was another guy talking to the Billy Crystal character and said, well, you know what? If you could have an affair and no one would know about it, would you do it? And Billy Crystal said, well, no. The guy goes, why not? No one would know. And, and Billy Crystal responded, well, I would know. And I, was, and I remember as I was watching that, I go, well, that's true. But even more than that, God would know. And sometimes we forget about that. You know, if you were to sin, you were tempted to sin, say, and say Jesus Christ was standing right there, would you sin? No, Jesus Christ is standing right there, you know. But the thing is, you know, God is with you everywhere you go. God sees everything you do. So why is that not the same uh, motivation? I guess it comes down to just how real God is to you. Is God as real to you as, as the person sitting next to you? The reality is he is that real, but do we think of him that real? He, you know, we, in our minds we know he's that real, but, but in our hearts we don't always act that way. So you can be sure your sins will find you out because God sees everything you do. And if, he, if, if that's the way he, if you need to be cleansed and purged of that sin, and your sin being discovered is the, the method God wants to, to purge you of, then he'll do it, and then you can't really do anything about it. And then thirdly, to motivate us not to sin... God had to continually remind the people of Israel who they were, who they are. They are not to engage in pagan practices. They're not to live their lives the way the people of other nations do because that's not who they are. They're not to act as if they don't know the Lord like other people who don't know the Lord because they do know the Lord. In Leviticus 20.26 it says, You shall be holy to me, for I the Lord am holy, and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. You shall be holy, for I am holy. There's a number of times that, that God reminded them of that, more than once. Because they're separated from the other peoples, and that's partly what the word holy means, is the idea of separation. In other words, there was like um, utensils or whatever in the tabernacle that were to be used for you know, the, the whole system of worship. And those utensils were not to be used for common things. Because they've been dedicated to the Lord, they were wholly set apart for you know to, for the whole practice of, of worshiping. Now that's how it is for you and I. You were holy in the sense that we've been set apart for a special purpose of God, and that's the same thing with the nation of Israel. He's saying you're, you're separated from the people. You've been chosen for a, a special purpose, and that purpose was ultimately we now know is for the Messiah to come through the Jews, for salvation through the Jews. Exodus 19.6 says, You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Deuteronomy 7.6 For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. So they are a holy people. They are, they are a separated people. They are a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, a God's chosen people, God's treasured possession. So they're not to allow themselves to be influenced by other nations. They're not to be engaging in stealing things and hiding them in tents or whatever, even whether people found out about it or not. They're not to be doing that kind of thing because that's not who they are. That's not the kind of people they are. They are a holy nation. 
They are God's chosen people, and that's not what God's chosen people do. Same thing for us. You're a holy people. We are a holy people. And we need to focus on who we are in Christ, you know, because we will act the way we think of ourselves, and sometimes we forget who we are. As Paul says, we're to, to reckon the old man dead. Now, much preaching is focused on the fact that we are sinners who are saved, saved by grace, and that's absolutely true. And we preach that a lot because a lot of people need to hear that. A lot of people need to be reminded of that. There is no sin that God cannot and will not forgive. And you can't ever think that you've sunk so low that, oh boy, I don't think there's any redeeming me kind of a thing. Because that's just thoughts of the devil. Uh, you know, if, if that were really true, that you could sink so low that you couldn't be redeemed, then that would mean that there's a requirement for all of us. We have to live at a certain level, right? Or we're, gonna, we're not going to be able to be saved. Well, if that were the case, then grace is no longer grace. We are saved by grace. And so whatever sin you've committed, it can be forgiven if we repent of our sins. If we, we go and ask God for forgiveness, then, you know, whatever sin we've committed, God is able to forgive it through Jesus Christ. As it says in Isaiah, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. There is no sin that God cannot forgive. However, as true as that is, I'm afraid that there's a danger uh, that we count on that too much. You know, that we're, we, we, it causes us to maybe sin too easily because we know God's going to forgive. We know we're saved by grace. We're not, you know, saved. We don't have to maintain a certain level of righteousness to be saved. And, and so that can, you know, have a, uh, you know, like I said, I think we count on that too much. Suppose a Christian were to say, well, if God forgives us uh, of every sin that we commit, of whatever sin we commit, then, then why not just go sin? And, you know, knowing that God's going to forgive us, you know. And, and unfortunately, uh, you know, people think that way. There's some truth to that. God will, whatever sin you commit, God will forgive it. But the fact of the matter is, I believe a true believer simply won't think that way. A true believer would be appalled at that kind of a thinking, even if you could argue that is theologically correct. Paul dealt with that same issue in Romans chapter 6. It says, Paul says in verse 1, he goes, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Now, Paul had been talking about how um, our sins are forgiven, and we're forgiven by grace. And the more we sin, the more God's grace abounds. In other words, uh, the greater sin, I think even Jesus said, you know, who's going to be more grateful, the one who's been forgiven little, the one who's been forgiven much? You know, well, the one who's been forgiven much, you know, and they've experienced more of God's grace. So then Paul says, well, what do you say then? Are, are we to continue to sin that God's grace may abound? And here's his answer, by no means, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Now, the first time I read Paul's answer to that years ago when I was a teenager, I didn't quite understand. It wasn't quite the answer I was expecting. And it just kind of went over my head a little bit because I was expecting him to say, you know, you think that way, brother. You're, you're, you're lost in eternity in hell. You know? But he didn't say anything like that. He didn't quite say you were lost. He just said, you know, how can we who have died to sin still live in? In other words... He's saying, how can someone who's truly saved, who's truly born again, you've died to sin, this is now who you are, that kind of a person simply will not choose to continue to sin and depend on God's grace. You know, a true born-again believer just won't do that. You won't want to do that. 
And, and if you have no problem with that, then again, you need to you know, get someplace alone and, and pray about your relationship with God if you have no problem with that. Uh, that kind of thinking should appall you. But yet, as much as we condemn that kind of thinking, how many of us are guilty of it? Because every time we sin, we're choosing to sin. And, and we probably know we're not losing our salvation kind of a thing. God's going to forget. You know, we're probably more guilty of that than, than we care to admit. And I think part of the problem, even though it is so true that we are sinners saved by grace, part of the problem is we keep focusing on that. We're sinners saved by grace. We're sinners saved by grace. That we just keep thinking of ourselves as sinners. And you know, the Bible doesn't really, the New Testament doesn't talk a lot about us being sinners. As a matter of fact, and someone can try to prove me wrong in this, I don't believe that the word sinner, it's in the New Testament, but I don't believe it's ever attached to a believer. I don't think believers or Christians are ever actually called sinners. Now, that doesn't mean we're not sinners. If you sin, you're a sinner. And the Apostle John said, you know, if you say you have no sin, then you're a liar. So yes, we are sinners, but the New Testament focuses a lot more on who we are in Christ, and that's exactly the kind of thinking process that we need to have. We need to be focusing more on who we are in Christ. Because every time we sin, I think we're forgetting who we are. So to that end, I want us to look at who we are in Christ. And, and I've made a list of everything the New Testament says uh, of, of who we are in Jesus Christ. And we're going to put that list up there. And as we go to that list, I want us to say it. And I want us to say it together. Not just me reading it off. I want all of us as a congregation to say it together. And it's going to take a few slides because there's a lot that the Bible says as to who we are. So let's go through this list and let's say it together. You don't need to say the, the Bible reference. Uh, let's just say who we are. I am the salt of the earth. I am the light of the world. I am a child of God. I am a part of God's family. I am a son of God. I am an heir of God since I am a son of God. I am a joint heir with Christ, sharing his inheritance with him. I am a part of the true vine. I am Christ's friend. I am chosen and appointed by Christ to bear his fruit. I am a personal witness for Christ, for Christ. I am a slave of righteousness. I am enslaved to God. I am a temple of God. His spirit dwells in me. I am joined to the Lord and am one spirit with him. I am a member of Christ's body. I am a new creation. I am reconciled to God and am a minister of reconciliation. I am one in Christ. I am a saint. I am God's workmanship created in Christ for good works. I have been chosen before the foundation of the world. I am a fellow citizen with the rest of God's people. I am a prisoner of Christ. I am righteous and holy. I am a citizen of heaven. I am seated with Christ in the heavenly places. I am hidden with Christ in God. I am an expression of the life of Christ because he is my life. I am chosen by God. I am loved by God. I am a child of the light. I am a holy brother, partaker of a heavenly calling. I am a partaker of Christ. I am one of God's living stones being built up as a spiritual house. I am part of a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, 
a people for God's own possession, that I may proclaim the excellencies of God. I am an alien and stranger in this world. I am an enemy of the devil. I am now a child of God, and I will resemble Christ when he returns. I am born of God, and the evil one cannot touch me. I am not the great I am, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. I don't know how any believer can go through that list and have any motivation to go out and sin. When we remember, like I said, when we sin, it's because we forget who we are in Christ. And I would encourage you, think about that, meditate on that. So we hurt others, our sins will be found out, and you are a holy people. Remember who you are in Christ. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I just thank you Thank you for what your word says. Thank you for just the magnitude of what, by your grace, a grace beyond anything we can imagine or comprehend, who you have made us in Christ. And it doesn't fully manifest yet who we are, but obviously it will become more clear when we, when we are with you in your presence someday. But Lord, we just pray that to whatever extent your grace allows, help us to really grasp who we are and to take that path of righteousness, to live a life worthy of you that pleases you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.